A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored anonymously by a longtime listener of Jewish History Soundbites, who wishes to express gratitude to the podcast for all the wonderful content provided. Just reading this off. Uh, may the podcast continue to enjoy growth and success. Thank you very much. So, thank you, and that's very sweet. Um, so, in that context, I want to mention that sponsorships are available. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode, please be in touch with me at yehuda.yehudigeber.com. Um, so, let's get to our topic today, very unique Something a little different, a little off the beaten track. Before that, something just, uh, I guess, a part of American uh, history or current events or whatever. Uh, in honor of the upcoming July 4th, there's the uh, death of the historic figure Donald Rumsfeld a few days ago, who goes all the way back to the Nixon and Ford administrations, and then with uh, George Bush uh, Jr. by uh, uh, 9-11, the Pentagon, and... Uh, and then all the warmongering in Iraq with the elusive weapons of mass destruction. So there's a piece of American history there, and in many ways similar to the famous Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, 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 I think, who actually expressed regret in his later years for some of his Vietnam War decisions. But um, interesting stories of Secretaries of Defense. But that's that's American history. Let's get back to some feedback on the recent episodes on the Kloisenberger Rebbe and Rebbe Eliezer Silver. We had a two-part series, hopefully a third part coming soon, one of the next few weeks. Um, there was so much from the feedback from those episodes on the on the uh, Kloisenberger Rebbe and on Rebbe Eliezer Silver, there was so much halachic uh, feedback from our knowledgeable listeners that it, was, it became almost like a halacha headlines podcast. You'll you'll uh, you'll uh, hear now from the letters, but no worries. We're not going to be discussing too much halacha. This is a history podcast. We're not going to be discussing lace top shaitels, none of that stuff. So here was one letter I received in the Kloisenberger Rebbe Part Two episode. You said that everyone in Europe, including Germany, kept the Rabbeinu Tam time for uh for uh, davening or for anything for any 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 stuff regards to uh um anything that needed to be time measured at the end of the day or beginning of the day 
Rabbeinu Tam. And, and then said, well, for sure in Galicia and Hungary. However, you should know that Yekis in Germany kept 35 minutes and not the Rabbeinu Tam 72 minutes. So that's a very interesting uh, piece of history that I was not aware of. And I read in a few sources that Yekis uh, kept longer, some even 72, Rabbeinu Tam. Um, but uh, so there's an important uh, halachic clarification. On the Reblazer Silver episode, several listeners weighed in on the blessing for the U.S. president. I mentioned that Reblazer Silver made the blessing, or said to make a blessing, on President Taft. And I expressed my, um, my reservations about that. And of course, it was a mistake for someone as ignorant as I am in halacha, in halacha to uh, voice any opinion on it. But it was related to history, that's why I did. And of course, we have many knowledgeable in halachic uh, matters, uh, proficient uh, listeners out there. And they all submitted their opinions. First of all, that Ramesha Feinstein allowed making, uh, reciting a bracha on the President of the United States. Another one submitted that the Arach HaShulchan recommends a blessing without God's name. Others cited stories where the blessing was recited on recent presidents. So it seems that there are different opinions and that possibly Blazer Silver was of the opinion that it is to be recited. It's interesting that I personally remember how one of my rabbi in the Mereshiva, Rafael Shmuelevitz, told me how he was, he was part of the uh, rabbinical committee working on the Talmudic Encyclopedia and their offices were, on, were in, at the edge of Bayit Vagan, right across the street from Har Herzl, from Mount Herzl in, in Yerushalayim, any of the listeners are familiar, and he saw President Nixon, Richard Nixon, on his state visit to Israel, he went to pay his respects at Mount Herzl, or maybe it was Yad Vashem, whatever it is, somewhere over there. And um, he, so he saw Nixon from far, and he was thinking about should he recite the blessing or not, and he told me that in the end he decided not to recite it, and then uh, shortly afterwards the Watergate scandal broke, so he saw it as supporting his position as it became clear to him that the United States government, with their system of checks and balances, that the executive branch does not retain full power, and that Congress, as the legislative branch, is just as powerful, if not more powerful. But of course, uh, there are other opinions and anecdotes, and that makes it more exciting, so I welcome all feedback in that regard. Um, on the topic of Reblaze of Silver, there was more feedback. One, one, uh, one listener shared a humorous anecdote with him that uh, Reblaze of Silver was once introduced at a function to speak. The MC gave a long-winded introduction with all the titles, Rabban shall kol b'nei ha'goyla, etc. Reblaze of Silver got up to speak and said, I'm not as great as he said I am, but I'm greater than he thinks I am. Um, another listener submitted... That being that one of the pictures in the art of the episode was of Reblazer Silver near the pyramids in Egypt, so we can assume, uh, presume that uh, Egypt was one of the ten countries that he visited, so now we have nine out of the ten, uh, so we know the names of. In other history news, the Mashgiach of the Mir Yeshiva, the late Mashgiach of the Mir Yeshiva, Baran Chadash, so his son, Rabbi Ephraim Chadash, was appointed as the Mashgiach of the Israeli division of Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. So we have a very interesting historic occasion that the third generation of Mashgiach in the family, Rameir Chadash in Hebron, Slabatka Hebron, 
And then the Rabbanon Chadash Mir Yeshiva for decades, and now his son is continuing the legacy, continuing the chain of tradition, and he is a Mashgiach in the part of the Mir Yeshiva. So that's very nice and exciting news as well. The topic I wanted to speak about today is, like I said, off the beaten track, um, somewhat an unfamiliar figure. And I would start off by asking, if you take a survey of people, anyone uh, around, and you say, who is the greatest Jew of the 20th century, or who is the most influential Jew, however you want to phrase it with the semantics and and you know, use the right loaded word that you want to, you know, to get the answer that you want um, of the 20th century. So many would instantly answer Albert Einstein because if he was the Times, Time Magazine's man of the century or person of the century, so then, of course, he was the most influential Jew of the century, right? Others would say maybe Sigmund Freud. But let's say we would, you know, limit the question to what about their influence within the Jewish people? In other words, Einstein's influence was on the on the world stage. So then uh, many would say right away, David Ben-Gurion uh, or Golda Meir or maybe the Marx Brothers if you want to go in a different direction. Uh, Louis Brandeis, again, that's more on the world scene or Martin Buber. If you would limit it to somewhat of a religious influence and ask religious Jews in a Jewish sense, in a religious sense, who had the biggest impact, who was the greatest or the most influential Jew of the 20th century, so many would right away answer the Lubavitcher Rebbe, or Benachem Mendel Schneerson, or Rabbi Meisha Feinstein, or Baron Cutler, the Gera Rebbe, Rabbi Chaim Meiser Grudzinski, the Panavizher Rav, the Satmar Rav, and everyone would have their uh, um, opinion and to explain it why that is the case and why it's true, and of course it would make for a very lively discussion which uh, would help time pass by a Shalom Zachar or a long uh, road trip or something like that. However, almost no one, I could pretty much bet that almost no one would choose a fellow by the name of Jacob Robinson. And he's my choice. That's uh, my personal choice. Uh, and for some reason, he's not very well known, although his list of accomplishments is almost endless. And, uh, and it makes him one of the most influential Jews, if not the most, uh, definitely up there of the 20th century. A fascinating individual, and I just want to focus on two aspects. Um, a, you know, one, an overview, just a list basically of his accomplishments through his biography, and then maybe to zoom in on one of them, which kind of defined his whole life and career. He's born in 1889, Litvak uh, rabbinical family, is descendant of the Taisis Yamtev, Rabbiamtev Lipman Heller. And he, um, he uh, gets a traditional education. He goes to yeshiva, and at the age of 15, he starts to drift away. He goes to gymnasium with a very you know, mixed, mixed uh, student body. With, with, you know, Lithuania is, of course, part of the Russian Empire at the time. This is at the turn of the century. And has, he has Russians and Poles and Lithuanians and Germans and Jews all in his class. And this gives him, you know, a sense of the cosmopolitanism and internationalism that would come to be the defining feature of him, him as a lawyer, a jurist, a politician, a diplomat, a writer, a researcher, a journalist, a, a, everything that he was and so much more. Um, and uh, he also became a Zionist. He grew up in a Zionistic home, so he was a Zionist throughout his life and a Zionist leader throughout his life. Um, so he 
goes he graduates from gymnasium he um, goes to university Warsaw University and he graduates with the equivalent of a doctorate and later on gets an official doctorate and uh, he graduate gets his doctorate and gets married just in time for World War one to break out and in 1914 with the outbreak of World War one he's drafted into a combat unit into the Russian Czarist army and taken prisoner a year later by the Germans, and he becomes a prisoner of war in 1915. Now, because he had a doctorate and, and he was a lawyer, so the Germans uh, treated him as they would an officer, and therefore he got, uh, you know, better. He didn't have to do any physical labor, and he was able to order newspapers and books and continue his research. He even printed a Zionist newspaper in the prisoner of war camp, and he spends three years in German prisoner of war camps, which gives him a certain exposure um, Germany and and, and and a lot about that as well. Um, and then he returns to Lithuania uh, at the war's end. Now when he returns to Lithuania, Lithuania is becoming independent. It's after the Treaty of Versailles and the rise of all the independent uh, nation states in uh, across Europe with the with the um, with the end with the collapse of all the empires and he goes right into Lithuanian politics, Lithuanian nationalism, Lithuanian patriotism. He's one of the only prominent Jewish leaders at the time who took the trouble of studying Lithuanian as a language, which would become crucial to his influence in his early career. Because until until 1919, when Lithuania actually became a, a country with its own parliament, so Lithuania was considered a, a very primitive language, a language of of, of, of peasants, of the lower class, of, of, uh, and Russian was the language of the intellectuals um, and of the scholarly, of the literati. And um, so any, any, uh, uh, any Jew who can, you know, respected himself and focused on Russian or German or Polish maybe, but definitely not Lithuanian. And he actually took the trouble of studying Lithuanians. He was one of the only Jewish political leaders at the time who was able to speak the language, which now became the officially recognized language of the country, and to uh, distance themselves from their previous, uh, um, you know, being a being subservient in, in a minority in the Russian Empire. So Russian was banned in official circles. Russian could not be spoken. And in a bizarre situation, when the uh, uh, um, uh, Jewish uh, prominent Jewish politician Shimshon Rosenbaum had to speak in the Lithuanian parliament. See, he knew Russian, he knew German, he knew he knew uh, Polish, he knew, of course, Yiddish, um, but he did not know Lithuanian. Now, Yiddish was recognized as an official language in Lithuania as part of the minorities agreement, which I'm going to get to. So he was allowed to speak in Yiddish from the parliament floor, but no one understood Yiddish. So um, so, so this guy, Rose, uh, Robinson, had to translate for him. And then during cabinet meetings, which Robinson was not a cabinet minister, so he was not allowed to in. So during cabinet meetings, Rosenbaum was required to speak in Yiddish because he didn't know Lithuanian, and he was not allowed to speak in Russian or German or Polish in the Lithuanian parliament. So he had to speak in Yiddish, and the stenographer just recorded that the Jewish representative spoke in, in his own Jewish language that no one else understood, and they didn't record what he said. So he had this really bizarre situation of people who didn't know Lithuanian, and him, the fact that he did, uh, played to prove to be a crucial uh, asset to him in his advancement. Um, so, either way, see, he, uh, 
he moves to Kovna at the end, of, when he comes back to Lithuania, and he opens a Jewish Hebrew school in 1919 in a, in, a, in a town near Kovna, and he directed it until 1922 for several years. He's involved in Jewish education. He practiced as a lawyer in Kovna. He was elected to the Lithuanian parliament, uh, and he was an editor, founder and editor of the Kovna Yiddish newspaper, the Yiddish Stimme. So he's investing in Yiddish language and culture at the same time that he's promoting Hebrew in, in his schools. Um, so he's, he's all over the place. And these are all his minor accomplishments because he soon comes onto the international stage. Um, the Minorities Treaty, which, uh, which was part of the Treaty of Versailles, which was, uh, which was promoted by Woodrow Wilson, even though the United States did not join the League of Nations, um, but it was forced upon um, the, the new uh, emerging countries of Europe who were part of the League. And, um, and they had to treat their minorities and give them equal rights and autonomy. And one of the only countries that actually welcomed it was Lithuania. And they give, they're the only country in Europe and one of the only countries in the history, in world history, that gave their minorities and specifically their Jewish minority full autonomy in, in the fact that their schools, for example, just as an example of what full autonomy means, there's, you're talking about Jewish private schools in the Yiddish language, Yiddish language, maybe even Yiddish religion, um, were fully funded, 100% funding. Um, even the state of Israel doesn't give all of their schools 100% funding. Some yes, some not. But um, you're talking about a fascinating situation where there's full autonomy. Every cultural, every ethnic minority is entitled to full autonomy, cultural autonomy, um, and is allowed to send the representatives to the government. There's a minister of Jewish affairs on the cabinet. Their schools have full funding, cultural institutions, social institutions, and there's a flourishing of, of, of these institutions all over with full tax-paid government funding, a fascinating uh, episode, which in itself is a great chapter of Jewish history, which is worth expounding upon another time. It lasts for only several years. By the, uh, There's a military coup in Lithuania which overthrows the government in the mid-1920s, and that's the end of that. Um, that, that whole thing disappears. There's no more representation, there's no more autonomy, there's no more funding, there's no more anything. Um, so it was very short-lived. It lasts for five, six years. But this is like the golden age of, of, of Jewish uh, autonomy in Lithuania. Um, so he, uh, Robinson rises as uh, a leader in, of the Jewish political politics in Lithuania at the time. And, he, and, he, uh, and then he um, with the collapse of Jewish representation in Lithuania, he still maintains a personal relationship with members of the government, and he runs a clandestine organization which still represents the Jewish interests uh, to the Lithuanian government in a you know behind closed doors fashion. But now he turns to the international stage in in minorities' rights. Again, minorities' rights is the buzzword of interwar Europe, where there's because of the borders that are redrawn, so minorities uh, are an issue. Ethnic minorities are an issue everywhere. There's Polish minorities in Germany. There's German minorities in Poland and the Baltic states. There's uh, um, Ukrainian minorities in Poland, and there's Slavic, you know, Czechoslovakian minorities all over. And 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 the understanding at Versailles was that there would be a mutual understanding that if. If I take care of your minorities, then you're going to take care of my minorities, and therefore it's worth it for me not to trample on the rights of the minorities within my borders so that 
the ethnic minority who kind of belong, in quotation marks, to my country uh, will, will be taken care of in in your country because of the redrawn borders just created a reality where there's all these minorities on uh, different sides of the border. Now, the only ones who th- that, that understanding wouldn't hold true for was the Jewish minority everywhere because there was no mutual understanding because there was no Jewish country anywhere and there was no uh, Jewish... Uh, presence at the League of Nations, which could submit uh, petitions for Jewish rights, um, because only a country could submit that petition on behalf of its minority somewhere else. Um, so that caused this issue, which Robinson became the main champion of. And um, he joins the, uh, what's called the Congress, the, the European Nationality Minorities, the, the I don't recall, the European Nationalities Minorities Congress. Um, he becomes pretty much the leader of, of that Congress, uh, and he attends it and gives a very charismatic and speeches there every year. And one of the leaders of European minorities in general. Um, there's this there's this group of minorities from all over Europe that convene in Geneva and wherever every year, and they discuss the issues of minorities across Europe, including the Jewish minority. There's this bizarre uh, and ironic and kind of tragic. Uh, um, a partnership that Robinson makes with Weimar Germany, the country that had the most minorities everywhere, was Germany. There were these all these ethnic German and Volksdeutsche German all across Europe, and they were very interested in promoting minorities' rights, especially with a darker side of German nationalism. That first it would be minorities' rights, and then it would be pan-German nationalism, which was obviously taken to an extreme later on with Hitler. Uh, and and Nazi uh, racism and the you know the justification for entering uh, Austria and then uh, and then the Sudetenland and that's that's of course uh, the, the the what what it led to but Robinson could not have known that at the time um, and he and he promotes this Jewish minorities representation to be promote and to to get to get together with Weimar Germany so that they would be the country that would promote minorities rights at the League of Nations. Uh, because uh, the minorities were stuck between a the Bolshevik menace in the East, which, although they granted autonomy and minorities' rights in the Soviet Union, but they were not part of the League of Nations, and there's always the risk of these countries falling to communism. And in the West, uh, there was br- the United States was not part of the League of Nations, and uh, they also had their own minorities' issues at the time. They were one of the most racist countries in the world in the 1920s. And then you also had the issue of British imperialism. Uh, England uh, was not interested in promoting any minorities' rights at the fear of exposing British hypocrisy, because in the British Empire, minority rights were trampled on as a matter of official policy. Um, So maybe in Europe it was okay to have minorities' rights, but not in the British Empire. So they kept quiet about minorities' rights, and it seemed that the only one who would champion minorities' rights would be Weimar Germany, ironically. And of course, that turned out to be a disaster. Once, once, once it, uh, once they abandoned the minorities' rights and just promoted pan-German uh, nationalism. Um, but that was uh, an aspect of his career, and this led to him to founding with other world Jewish leaders at the time the issue of Jewish minorities. And they had a conference on Jewish minorities in uh, 1927 in Zurich, which leads to the founding of the World Jewish Congress. So he's a founder of the World Jewish Congress, which promotes Jewish interests and fight uh, for anti-Semitism and Jewish minority rights in Europe and around the world. And, uh, and he 
and he was the one who basically was the engine behind that. Moving ahead, there's a fascinating story that he also was a part of, was that in 1933, with the, the end of, 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 uh, of Weimar Germany, the end of uh, Germany promoting minority rights with the rise of Hitler and the Nazi party, and their takeover of Germany, and then of course... There's no such thing as minorities anymore. There's only racial hierarchy. There is no ethnic, and there is no minority, and there is no, there is no anything. There's only a racial hierarchy in the Aryan race, and therefore the Jews are not a minority. They are defined, legally defined out of existence by being untermenschened, by being subhuman and not privileged to any rights. Um, and then they start to trample on those rights by stripping Jews of their citizenship and kicking them out of their different jobs in the civil service, and legal profession, and doctors, and all those other things, universities, and professors, and students, and, and so on and so forth, what we're unfortunately familiar with. So, the Robinson's idea was to try to fight it legally at the International Court of the League of Nations at The Hague, uh, and uh, having a country submit the petition. Which country? So he tried England. And uh, the Foreign Secretary of England was not interested in promoting it. And so Robinson, in, in, citing the fact that Germany was not signatory to the Minorities' Rights Treaties Treaty of the League of Nations, uh, which was true. So Robinson says, not only is the Foreign Secretary of England a coward, he's also a lousy lawyer. Because any good lawyer would know that even though they're not signatory to the Minorities' Rights Petition, but there is the case of Upper Schlesia. What's the case of Upper Schlesia? So the story was that in 1922, there was a border dispute between Germany and Poland about a district called Upper Schlesia, which is you know, rich in, in, in natural resources, so you know, everyone wanted it. And they, they, the uh, treaty that was signed ultimately was to divide it in half, and for 15 years they would protect and oversee the rights of each other's minorities in their territory. So Germany would respect minorities' rights in the, their half of Upper Schlesia, and Poland would, would, uh, would do the same. So here we have, even though they're not signatory to the general treaty of minorities' rights, but in, in, in Upper Schlesia they are. So he did the incredible thing. He found a fellow by the name of Franz Bernheim, who lost his job, was in Prague. He had run away from Upper Schlesia. He was a resident of Upper Schlesia, a Jewish resident. And he had lost his job because of the Nazi policy of firing Jews from their jobs and, and kicking them out of their positions. And he got him to sue, basically, Nazi Germany at the International Court of the League of Nations at The Hague. And he won! And this caused an international outcry, and, and it brought the issue of, of Nazi anti-Semitism and Nazi uh, stripping Jews of their rights to the international scene. And it was argued in court. And, uh, and, and incredibly enough, Nazi Germany backed down and they reinstated the Jews of Upper Schlesia with all their rights. They did not implement the Nuremberg Laws. And until the treaty ran out at the end of 1937, uh, for five years, the Jews of Upper Schlesia uh, retained all their rights, which didn't help them that much in the long run, but what he scored was that he felt was a public relations uh, victory. It was a stunning victory. It stunned the world that here you were able to take on Nazi Germany if you wanted to, and if you had the motivation to, to be able to uh, to uh, make them have a commitment to minorities' rights, to Jewish rights. And unfortunately, it didn't lead to that much of a tangible result um, in the long run, but it was still a... a uh, a, uh, considered a, a crucial moment. A year earlier, in 1932, he had argued, 
He had been hired by the Lithuanian government as the greatest lawyer. He was called the, 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 the Council of the Jewish People, the Jewish People's Lawyer, and also the Council of the World. He's one of the greatest international lawyers in the world, respected jurists, as a scholar and a jurist at the time. Worldwide, he was world famous at this point. And he was hired by the Lithuanian government to argue a case about Memel, uh, Port City, again, a border dispute with Germany, and he represented Lithuania at the at the League of Nations uh, uh, um, uh, uh, court and won, and won uh, for the Lithuanian government. Um, so that's that's his activity up to that point, and unfortunately, when the war breaks out, he uh, is assisting Polish refugees who are streaming into Lithuania, and then he himself escapes with his family, um, in, uh, in, in 1940, he reaches the United States and then continues with his fabulous career. He, he's part of the World Jewish Congress, like I mentioned, one of the founders. So he founds the Institute of Jewish Affairs uh, of the World Jewish Congress, uh, the American Jewish Congress, the World Jewish Congress, uh, which, is, which is dedicated to research, and he directed it. And, uh, and then he prepares, as a lawyer, he prepares the legal basis for prosecuting Nazi war criminals. So the whole Nuremberg trials comes out because of him. He's able to create the legal basis, um, and then the and and then he um, uh, he advise. He's the legal counsel who advises the chief prosecutor at the uh, Nuremberg trials, Robert Jackson, and then Telford Taylor, who was a uh, also the a chief prosecutor for part of the Nuremberg trials at the end of the war. So he's involved in in that, and then he becomes active in the United Nations. He saw the failure of minority rights. He had dedicated the whole two decades of the interwar period to promoting minority rights, and he saw it as a disaster, as a dismal failure. They did not succeed in anything. They did not succeed in protecting Jews. It only led to the Second World War. So he redefined his entire thinking, and he started promoting a concept which we take for granted today, which is basically his, his doing, and that's called human rights. Uh, minorities' rights, which are defended by a a host country of those rights didn't work. And therefore, there's, there's, a, there's a new idea called human rights, where every single human being is, seen, is to be seen as an individual with international underst- internationally understood rights, legally accepted rights, that international bodies respect, and you can prosecute and bring to court in any country in the world or to an international court based on a violation of those rights. So he, uh, he formulates that and creates the legal basis of the UN Commission of Human Rights, um, and so he becomes uh, he becomes the one who creates that whole whole concept and and writes the legal code for it for the United Nations. Uh, and then he doesn't stop there; he stays in the United Nations in 1947. He becomes the legal advisor to the Jewish Agency at the UN, and then he's the legal counsel to the Israel's delegation at the UN for ten years, from 1948 to 1957. And he develops basically the Israeli diplomatic service. He's hired by Israel to build up the Israeli diplomatic service. And then he drafts the, the legal uh, documents for the reparations agreement between Israel and West Germany. He and his brother, Nehemiah, who was another brilliant lawyer, so they, they, they write the claims conference. They create the claims conference. Um, he becomes the legal advisor for the claims conference. He is one of the founders of Yad Vashem, and he coordinated Holocaust research between Yad Vashem and other institutes around the world, like Evo and and, uh, and other places in France and Germany. Um, and he starts becoming a Holocaust researcher. He wrote several books on the Holocaust. He wrote several books on international law. 
And then he becomes the legal mind behind the prosecution at the Eichmann trial in 1960. And he's the special assistant to Gideon Hausner, the attorney general, general who was the prosecutor at the Eichmann trial. So he doesn't, again, his, his list of, uh, mainly in the legal realm of accomplishments is endless. And uh, we're running out of time now, but uh, that's just a little bit about the incredible life of, uh, you know, passes away in 1977. So he's around for quite a bit of time after that. Um, and, uh, and uh, an amazing, amazing individual with amazing amount of accomplishments. And uh, perhaps we'll find another way to talk about this very unique story of minorities' rights in interwar Europe, which is a tragic story, but a very unique chapter in history in, in another context and another time. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.